0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is not Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. This is Jack Butler, the erstwhile amenuensis, not amuensis or whatever word that Jonah's been using. (laughs) Um, This is an episode of the Remnant Podcast, uh, but it is a special episode because this will be the last episode on which I appear. You may be
1: back Uh, at some point, but as co whatever
0: the hell you are, well, the last yeah the last episode is whatever. Condition I've been in. That's right. Uh, whatever condition my condition has been in. I, uh, we, what? I said I like it. What, what, that's a song. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know songs. This is gold. <laughs> well, <we're>, we are <laughs> we are already recording, so the gold is uh, it's not pyrite. Um, so we decided, or Jonah agreed. I don't really have power here. Uh, I don't think. Still, I have some something resembling power, perhaps. Uh, a simulacrum of power. That in this last episode, on which I appear in my current capacity, we would turn the table. We tried to turn the actual table in this room. It didn't quite work. It seems to be bolted to the floor. We've uh, torn several muscles in the attempt to actually turn it. So now we're just gonna do a. Uh, we're just gonna sit here and do a podcast in which I ask Jonah questions because I don't think there have been some guests who have turned the tables figuratively on you. Uh, like Nick, Mike Gallagher did a bit. Yeah, Nick Gillespie did. Yeah. Uh, those are the two I can think of, uh, but I, no one has ever dedicated an entire podcast to interrogating you, so I'm going to do it. All right. Uh, and s- s- do you have anything to say about anything you want to plug, dispatch, plug the dispatch? No, no, we
1: can you know, go to the thedispatch.com the dispatch.com and all that, and uh, let me say up front a couple things. One... I am uh, deeply and abidingly grateful to my friend Jack Butler for all the work that he has done on this podcast and my book, uh, now out in paperback, and (laughs) and sundry other things. And I'll say more at the end. I should also say I have no idea. We have not discussed at all. I've been in the isolation booth. um, The code of silence. About what Jack is actually going to ask me. So um, I am trying to be as good a sport about this as I can. There's some questions like about episode 11 I cannot address.
0: Oh, well, we are going to, we can talk about episode 11 at the end of this because I have a a potential surprise or not. We have to make a decision.
1: Okay, yeah, because again, this is all Jack taking taking the reins here, so let's get started.
0: Okay, first question. Are you now, or have you ever been a cock? (laughs) <laughs> no, not that's not the first question. Okay. Uh, the, the real first question is, what was your first meeting with William F. Buckley like? Do you remember it, the first time that you met him? Was it in your capacity as a National Review employee, or was it prior?
1: Um, I am fairly certain that I had been in the same room as him prior to working at National Review. Uh-huh. But I never met him or shook his hand until um, I went to National Review. I think the very first time I met him was in the elevator lobby outside the old... NR offices, which are not the original NR offices. Uh, so
0: there's been three. Yes,
1: yeah, so the original NR offices was a townhouse on the Lower East Side, and okay. I, I, one of my great laments. I'm very fortunate in that I came on board at National Review before William F. Buckley sort of was completely gone from the scene. I don't mean just deceased, but you know he was still fairly active in the magazine when I first got there. Yeah. But I really lament that I was never in the old office, the, the original offices which there was enormous amount of lore about. Um, apparently, I, I don't want to disparage the departed, but I'm fairly certain, I think Wilmore Kendall did things on the office couch one should not do.
0: Not the same as your couch. I not see. the same as my couch. Okay.
1: And, um, and I think Joe Sobrin, it was Joe Sobrin who smoked so many cigarettes or cigarellos or something that when they cleaned out his office... Rich realized that the windows weren't tinted. It was just from all the built-up nicotine. Oh my gosh! That like that. So there are all those kinds of stories, which you'll hear more about when you go over there. But um, and
0: weren't there like, wasn't there a situation in which somebody would like s- send somebody else an article by like throwing it out the w- of one window into a window on the next floor?
1: There's something like that.
0: I can't yeah. remember what the exact detail was. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it's hard for you youngs to really appreciate what office life was like before there were computers. But, um, anyway, when I came to NR in 98, I want to say late 98, um, I think I met him first time outside of an elevator I shook his hand. He was very charming, very excited to have me on board and, or at least he pretended to be. And the, the first real conversation I had with him was they which was a real treat at what they used to call his Maisonnette, his sort of mini mansion on uh, Park Avenue on, I think, 73rd Street. It's a really cool apartment. Kind of frozen in time, right? So, like, there was... Have you ever been to Graceland? No. Okay, so when you go to Graceland, one of the things that really comes out of you is how tacky extreme wealth was in like 1977 or whatever it was <laughs> and Bill's house wasn't tacky but it was from a completely other era there was like lots of holdover stuff from sort of the madman era madman era oh. and so like there were like some leopard, sp- leopard print seats around the bar there was the famous red room which was like the receiving room which was not like a, a shining thing oh. <laughs> and um uh And uh, my favorite touch was, on all of the tables, they had It's very hard to explain to people today. Uh, You might have seen sort of the equivalent with toothpicks. There are these little bowl dispenser things, and you pull a little tab on the top, and it lifts up the top, and the toothpicks inside kind of uh, spread out. You can grab one. Yeah. They had those with cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) at every table. and. Uh, they famously served peanut butter crackers with bacon on them.
0: Oh, yeah, the the, idios- the famously idiosyncratic snack that Buckley loved. And Wasn't there a longtime peanut butter brand that was specifically advertised in National Review?
1: Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. And there might have even been a special edition William F. Buckley peanut butter, but I'm, <laughs> I, I can't be held to that. And
0: I'm sure there's some, like, Marvel Comics equivalent of National Review memorabilia that, that has a tin of that peanut butter.
1: Yeah, we should go on eBay and check it out. So, anyway... Um, I got seated fairly early on in my tenure at NR next to Bill at dinner. And this is a point you've heard me talk about Bill Buckley a million times. Uh, when he talked to you, it was unbelievable how he was really just talking to you. He gave you all of his attention. He was probably the best listener of anybody, any any important person I've ever met. Um, and uh, he didn't get distracted by famous people um, if he was there to talk to you, he was in a conversation with you, and um, I think that that is one facet of the sort of the disco ball of his personality that helped him build modern conservative movement was that he was just so unbelievably generous and polite with people and showed them such respect that um, uh, he was able to stitch together this very d- intellectually and ideologically and characterologically desperate movement um, out of just sort of pure personal loyalty to Bill himself. So Anyway, that's a long answer, but I figured I should get it out there.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, So I'm, I'm only going to ask these questions literally in the order that I've written them down over the years. I understand. So there's going to be a lot of whiplash.
1: I feel a little, just for the record, I feel a little bit like Trump screaming at Don McGahn. When Don McGahn was taking notes. <laughs> I've never had a lawyer take takes notes. I, wa- I, wa- I wasn't... Com- I, I like that you took notes about, like, stuff we needed to get done. I wasn't quite aware that you were taking notes about all the stuff that I said. Uh, <laughs> so it makes me a little nervous, but go on.
0: I wouldn't be too worried about it. Uh, what is it with you and women's prison movies? <laughs> um, I've know- There are references to women's prison movies that go back to the beginning of your oeuvre.
1: They, they do. Uh, particularly... Uh, Chained Heat and Caged Heat franchises. Um, Which are different. They are different. Is there
0: ever a crossover? uh,
1: I don't believe so, but to be honest- Between the movies. I don't believe so, but to be honest, you wouldn't be able to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I I will admit some of it is purient. Uh, When it was like in the early days of cable- what passed for sort of cine, uh, Cinemax soft porn were often women's prison movies. It also has to do with the fact that a bunch of my friends when I first came to Washington were sort of similar mixes of, of sort of eggheadery and profanity that I am. And we would talk about them a lot. And, but it also took on a sort of life of its own is that when I started National Review Online, um, part of the whole idea behind it was to show rather than tell that this wasn't your father's national review, so the women 's prison movie jokes, the um, sometimes the, the the sort of jags about porn movie titles, um, all of that kind of stuff was to show a certain amount of more irreverence, um, some would argue, more decadence um, yes, who some 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 and so anyway, that's, that's sort of it just sort of stuck around, and I, I, I find the genre very, very funny as well
0: so. Okay. Um, Why did the business you started right out of college fail?
1: Because we did not know what we were doing. It's a good Um, answer. So it was actually, I believe, a good idea at the time, and it would have, uh, although it would have either been a media juggernaut by now or long since uh, failure uh, died, because what we wanted to do was... um, this was back when newspapers were still huge cash cows. We wanted to do, um, uh, me and some friends, wanted to start a newspaper in New York, a sort of free giveaway kind of newspaper that undercut the village voice in terms of ad rates and, and, and cost, um, uh, but appealed to sort of the same young market. And we spent a big chunk of my summer out of college trying to figure it out and doing what we thought was like serious business idea contemplation things and <laughs> it just uh we were the it was a good idea to a certain extent given where the market was at the time but we really just didn't know what we were doing didn't know how to raise the kind of money that was required for it and i had had such a stressful last year of college that um I was just like, I need to get the hell out of here, and that's why I went off to Prague to teach English.
0: Mm, Okay. Now the pieces of your your origin story are fitting together. (laughs) Uh, Now I just need to figure out when that that radioactive spider bit you. Mm -hmm. Um, I could ask this one, but I think this has actually been answered. Why did you start smoking cigars after previously deriding people who smoke cigars?
1: Um, I derided people who smoke cigars who didn't like cigars but were doing it to be cool.
0: Okay. Um, Were you at the time a a smoker of cigars?
1: I was not. But what... I mean, I tried them, and I used to... Like a reasonable person, the next morning, that taste in your mouth was so terrible that I was like, why do people do this? I grew up in a very smoky family, so I never really liked cigarettes. Um, Yeah,
0: there's the story you've told many times of your mother chewing out the, the convenience store owner who wouldn't let you buy cigarettes for her.
1: That's right. That's right. And also... As, a, um, as,
0: as what, an eight-year-old or however old you were? Six, seven, eight. Uh,
1: <laughs> there's also the... Uh, that poor lady. Um, there's also this... I thought that you were going to mention that when my mom was nursing me at New York University Hospital, uh, the nurses asked her to... Um, at least refrain from smoking while nursing the newborn. <laughs> but the hospital put ashtrays out on the tables next to all the moms. Wow. So anyway, I, I started smoking cigars in part because when I was writing my first book, uh, I needed the nicotine because I was working so hard and getting up at four, You know, working all weekends, working late into the night, that kind of thing. And I smoked a pipe. And, but I only did it at home because... Pipe smoking is incredibly pretentious and a terrible look. <laughs> and um,
0: Unless you are like an Oxford professor in the 30s.
1: Yeah. Roger Scruton could have pulled off pipe smoking. You yes. Know. Um, but, um, and then I stopped for a long time, and then I went to a bachelor party, uh, my uh, friend Doug Anderson's bachelor party in Vegas, and they were passing out cigars, and it turned out all of that pipe smoking had... Uh, seasoned me to uh, liking cigars, and that's when I started doing that. And then I, part of the reason I still smoke cigars is, as, as you know, uh, when I have deadlines, it's just it's a, it's a way to self-medicate because my brain is starting to turn to mush.
0: Mm. Are people getting dogs these days to substitute for children that they don't want to have? This is a, pers- a very deeply personal question for you because you love dogs. I, am, I don't own dogs, but I like them. Uh, and but this is something like I think Jonathan Last is probably one of the most high-profile c- yeah. contrarians or anti-dog people because for this reason. Yeah, I wrote a comment about it.
1: Clay Rutledge has made this point, and 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 our AI colleague Brad Wilcox sort of backs him up on this. I do think there's something to it that people are getting dogs, and there's a lot of data to back it up that when millennials are go house hunting. A bunch of a significant number ask more about uh, whether it's a good house for dogs than for kids. <laughs> and they, um, um, when they ask, fill out surveys about why they're looking to buy a house, they more as often, not I, I don't want to get the data, I don't want to exaggerate it, but a significant portion of them say it's because they want to have a dog, not because they want to have kids. And yeah. I think that, look, I think that's a legitimate. Criticism of where the culture is and all of that kind of stuff i should I thought you were going to stipulate at the beginning of the question that I also have a human child that I love <laughs> um, yeah and, i suppose and uh um, but I don't think that because some people get dogs for the wrong reasons, that is something to hold against dogs,
0: yeah, well, I mean what you can't hold anything against dogs they're they're dogs, yeah, um, but you also made the the point that there are some instances in which dogs can serve as uh, reinforcers of civil society. Because dog owners, you get to meet your neighbors. That's right. uh, You go to dog parks, et cetera. Also,
1: I got to say that um, as much as I give credence to the argument that dogs are serving as substitutes for for kids, dogs are also really good at being trial runs for having kids. Uh Uh-huh. Because, look- as, as people know, I also have cats. You can leave cats for an extended period of time alone, and they really don't care very much. Uh-huh. The amount of effort and, for want of a better word, this is the wrong word, but parenting that goes into taking care of a dog, training a dog, keeping a dog happy and healthy and all of that kind of stuff, it's nowhere near as difficult or as rewarding as having a human child, but it is a good way to sort of learn some of those basics, you know. um, You can't leave your kid unattended for very long either. (laughs) Um, And so in that way, I I am not sure that all the millennials moving to get dogs before they have kids means they won't have kids. Uh It might actually start building up the muscle required to want to go to the next level and and actually do the really meaningful thing, which is to have human
0: kids. Speaking of things that aren't human. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, what is this is something I've been curious about. Uh, I my speculation has run wild in my own brain, so I hope that I get an actual answer out of you here. What is the actual history between you and Sidney Blumenthal? Because <laughs> it see the way that you've used him as a punchline for your the entirety of your pro- professional career. Mm-hmm. But here here's my speculation. Go for it. I was he the Clinton. Uh, machine attack dog set specifically on you. Like, did you did he come after you specifically in ways that have made you angry at him ever since? Because that's the sense I get. There's something that seems deeply personal. You single him out as a part of the Clinton machine, as opposed to just referring to it as a whole.
1: Yeah, um, not that I can
0: recall
1: that that he singled me out. I mean, I know he said nasty things about my mom, but um, which will still you know, earn some enmity from me. As it should. Um, but um, back in the... So in in fairness, like, you're right to say he's been a constant theme ever since I started working at National Review. Uh-huh. Right. But um, I hadn't heard of him really until the mid-1990s, you know, when he became sort of a known figure. And part of it was back in those days... Blumenthal more than anybody else was um, a particularly vicious peddler of lies and gossip behind the scenes. Um, The things he said about other people I knew, you know, back, back during the Clinton impeachment stuff, there was an enormous amount of like information swapping, rumor swapping, all of that kind of stuff where you just sort of bartered what you knew about various people and all that kind of stuff. And the things that... Journalists would tell me about him, the things that people in you know in the, on the periphery of Clinton world would tell me about him. Um, he was a, I also thought he was a profoundly uh, intellectually dishonest writer. I think the thing that really pissed me off the most about him was a piece he wrote for The New Yorker, where he basically tried to make the case that, and I used to write about it all the time, it was one of the first big pieces I did for NR, too. Blumenthal tried to make the case that basically anti-communism was really... Just about homophobia, and that, and it was this. He's a good writer. I don't dispute that in the least. But he would, he would be profoundly dishonest in the way he wrote about things as a way to heap innuendo on his ideological opponents. And then when it turned out that he was almost literally working for the Clinton administration while writing for the New Yorker. I mean, all the jokes at the time were, you know, where does he go to get his back pay from the Clinton administration when he actually went into the Clinton administration? And and so there was just something so lugubrious and reptilian about the guy that um, um, it just sort of stuck. And he was one of the people that that Bill Clinton relied upon to spread lies about Monica Lewinsky. That came out eventually in the Star Report. And he was a willing participant in all of that kind of stuff. And... I think one of the themes of my, if you're trying to find themes in my worldview about journalism and conservatism and all that kind of stuff, is that people need to stay in their lanes more. And he was really the archetype of someone who used institutions that he wrote for to play political games behind the scenes. And he uh, vexed me.
0: But never did he, like, punch you in the face at the Georgetown Safeway or something like that?
1: Not. No, he's never punched me in the face or anything like that.
0: But someone—we'll get to your being punched in the face later. Okay. Um, okay. Well, that. Huh. I, I like my head cannon better. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> uh. Not, well, we're still on the subject of of things that aren't human. Uh huh. Actually, I was I was kind of mad on the Jake Tapper episode. He asked this question, um, but I'll ask it again anyway. Why Bigfoot erotica? <laughs> Why? Where did that come from? You explained, where. The, the, the context in which the reference appeared it was when you were talking to Andy Ferguson in the, I believe, 6th or 7th episode of The yeah, Remnant, yeah, yeah. and uh, you were talking about how the internet has created uh, ways for people who previously would have been isolated from each other to unite across vast distances, which has a boon in some yeah. cases, but it also allows... People who are, for example, enthusiastic about Bigfoot erotica to start posting and sharing their creations with each other. This is how you put it. Mm-hmm. And I think Andy, Andy Ferguson at the time laughed and had no idea, like that it was a thing. Where that yes, yeah. and I didn't know either. And then you made me read some. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still have several
1: different Bigfoot erotica books stuck on my Kindle.
0: Yeah, they're all they're all free. Or a bunch of them are free, or like one cent. Yeah. Uh, you get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> but. Where, how did you, where did you encounter Bigfoot erotica?
1: I have to be brutally honest, I don't remember. Um, I, I am not a connoisseur of Bigfoot erotica. Um, uh, someone must have mentioned it once, and I thought it was funny. There's some stand-up comics who do some bits about Bigfoot um, that I think are funny. Uh, but I I don't, I, I just honestly don't know. I'm not pleading the fifth. I'm not dodging the question. Um, but... The second—I mean, as you can tell, right? So I heard it from someone and it's stuck in my head. Uh-huh. All the people who've heard me mention Bigfoot Araga, it's now stuck in their head. It is mimetically very sticky. It is, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's a quite singular concept. And I think you're—but I think you can claim, claim credit for its, like, uh meme status on the right. And it Probably. sort of— Sort of cemented when this Virginia uh, congressman was elected, yeah. but that was that was after, not before.
1: There have been a few times where I, I can claim credit not for coining something or creating something, but for propagating it far and wide. Cheese eating surrender monkey is yeah. A big I was
0: one. just yeah. reading the, the Simpsons Wikipedia page over the weekend, as one does, and I I saw you reference there. There you go. Um, congratulations, you're on Wikipedia. Thank you. Thank you. Um, All right. Uh, What is one thing you think you might be wrong about?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like just right now that
0: I think I might be wrong about? Yeah. Define this question any way you choose. Uh, I I leave it open to your interpretation. But uh, I'll ask you the next question if it helps you limit the potential answers to the first one. What is one thing you think the left could be right about? Um, so you can, I would prefer that you, you treat these separately, but if you want to lump them together, I suppose I can't stop you.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I am I am more open to some of the arguments about global warming than I once was. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely stand by my long-held position that the left uses global warming as a moral equivalent of war thing to get all sorts of things they want that really aren't about global warming. Yeah. Um. You know, it's um, there are all sorts of quotes from people like Tim Worth who, you know, say we're going to use global warming to get, you know, all sorts of other policies that we would want anyway. And there are lots of people who talk about the need for lying for justice and about global warming. There was the advisor to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who recently said in a private meeting that leaked out that they consider... The Green New Deal more about the economy than the environment. Uh-huh. The fact that Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren and all these people are, they say it's literally an existential threat that uh, may cause humanity or life on Earth to end and go extinct but wouldn't dare use nuclear power um, suggests to me that there's a political agenda separate and distinct from the rhetoric about, um, you know, saving the planet. Uh-huh. At the same time, I think that the... Um, um, I'm more inclined to think that there's probably some there there and it's not a complete hoax um, and that it's that the evidence is mounting that we should take it at least seriously that black swans do exist and and all of that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, some of the stuff that comes out of Niskanen, some of the stuff that my friend Ron Bailey, you know, Ron Bailey used to be very skeptical, major global warming skeptic and he changed his mind because... He went with the data and that had a big impact on me. Um, what we do about it and all of those kinds of things are a different matter. Um, so the left might be right about that. I think the left is, it, this is a complicated one. Um, I think income inequality as a moral issue is for the most part BS. As long as, everybody's state, as long as everybody's getting more rich, it does not bother me one bit if the rich are getting richer at a faster pace because the rich getting richer has a big compounding effect on everybody else getting richer too. That said, I think the, the disparities in wealth that the left harps on, I would argue sometimes for almost purely aesthetic or instinctual reasons, they do come at a cost of social peace. And social cohesion. And again, I I think you can talk about the symptom um, without um, necessarily agreeing with the prescription about what to do about it. Um, You know, on other things, you know, I've been saying this for a very long time. The left was basically on the right side of the civil rights issue, and the right was on the wrong side of the civil rights issue. It's more complicated than all of that. But um, I think it's worth at least acknowledging up front. I think it's important for conservatives to acknowledge that up front. Um, What else? Um, uh, There's a lot of pollution stuff that I'm I'm more and more concerned about, like plastic pollution and the acidification of the oceans. I really worry about the state of the oceans and that kind of stuff. But again, I I come at it from a fairly conservative perspective because I think a lot of the problems we have are tragedy of the commons problems. If we had more
0: rights, we could fix them. So I don't know. I'll keep thinking about that. Okay, that'll work for now. Uh, what is your most embarrassing intellectual lacuna? A, canon- a canonical book that you just haven't read? Some sc- uh, writer or scholar that is just a complete dead zone for you? Um,
1: I would say part of the answer is I'm really bad on Mill, on John Stuart Mill. And obviously I've read some Mill, uh-huh. about Mill, um, but given my affinity for liberal democratic capitalism and all that kind of stuff, (laughs) um, uh, I really should be much more fluent with Mill. I should be much more fluent with Oakshot than I am, um, who was a conservative philosopher in England.
0: And not a medieval weapon.
1: And not a medieval weapon. And I I will say I am really bad at mid-19th century American history. Like when I was working on my first book, I had to... It's like get up to speed on William Jennings Bryan and the Free Silver and all movement and all that kind of stuff. And more recently, when I've been doing all this stuff about parties, I had to go to school at a sort of high school level on the era of Good Feelings and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. I'm really bad on 19th century American history, and I'm embarrassed by it. Um, I'm also—I mean, I, whether you're, whether it's an intellectual lacuna or not—I
0: am—I am
1: bad at math.
0: I'm affirmatively well, bad at math. Well, I, you're <laughs> you're. In, you are an esteemed well, depending on how you how what you think of my company, you're at least in my company in that regard. Um, okay. Uh, do you, any issues that you just feel like you don't know anything about?
1: Oh yeah, there are a bunch. Um, like, and I think this is true of pretty much every pundit, columnist, whatever. There are some issues where you can't do all of the due diligence required. So you end up trusting certain experts and sort of farm out your expertise a little bit, yeah, or just avoid writing about them entirely. Monetary policy, as far as I can tell, is witchcraft, and uh-uh. just let Ramesh write about that. Yeah, no, when Ramesh Ramesh, who we both know as a Vulcan, when he writes about monetary policy and busts out these mathematical equations and talks about the velocity of money and all this kind of stuff, it just completely goes over my head.
0: Yeah, when when I hear the phrase velocity of money, I think of something that used to happen in the parking lot of my high school as we would be leaving the school and there was there was only like w- one road that you had to take to get out of it. And uh, so as, as we were waiting there, students would throw pennies at each other's cars. Yeah, I mean... I, idling. So that's I, what I think of when I think of velocity of money. I was
1: thinking you were going to go about like how there's a inverse proportion of... Monetary value to its velocity, and so far as if you're at a strip club, you can throw quarters really hard at the strippers, and they go really fast. (laughs) But if you throw paper money, it goes very slowly.
0: That's where (laughs) your mind went, Uh, not where mine went. I will (laughs) because you're so wholesome. All right, go. Well, I was talking about being assaulted by my by my fellow students of my high school. (laughs) Yeah, very wholesome stuff. Uh, And again, we'll get to when you're when you're assaulted by your peers later, Uh Um, or actually quite soon. But first, what was it like being an opera supernumerary? I think you've described this once or twice, but... I don't know if I've done it on, on the
1: podcast or not. Um, this is one of the great, grave problems of, of doing so many podcasts now, is that not only do I forget what I've said on previous podcasts, I forget whether I've said something on a podcast or in a private conversation. This is why
0: you should just record your entire life as a podcast.
1: Pretty much. I think that's right. Um, yeah, so when I was a kid, I was a supernumerary in supernumerary which I learned from my orthodontist in like fifth grade is also a dental term. I haven't, what? Yeah, it has, I, I can't remember what it means, but it's, it basically means extra. So like yes. maybe an extra tooth or something like that. I don't, I don't want to get deluged from corrections from our, our most learned dental uh, <laughs> listeners, but uh,
0: that's, that's... I'm sure we'll get them anyway.
1: Yeah, So, but um, it was awesome. I was a... I don't know how it happened. My dad was a huge opera fan. And the Metropolitan Opera, which is the, I think, still the premier opera house in America, at least. Um, there are a lot, all sorts of operas that um, require kids to basically stand around or run around or whatever, and uh, as basically just moving scenery. And so I never sang or anything like that. No one would want to hear me sing. But I was in, uh, I don't know, a half dozen, maybe. Operas in grade school, and I was in uh, uh, what's his name, um, Luciano Pavarotti's first opera in America. Really? Yeah, and I have I have I have autographs somewhere, like in my attic, from Placido Domingo, from from Luciano Pavarotti, and I was in I was in Lohengrim, Peter Grimes, Faust.
0: Oh, so that's where you made that deal with the devil. That's right.
1: Right. L'Eladzir de More. I mean, I'm butchering all of this. And it was, you would have loved it because, first of all, they paid you off book because it wasn't a union job. Nice. They they gave you, like, I'm I'm like 11 or nine at the time. And they pay you, (laughs) like, they paid me, like, I'm guessing here, like $17 an hour for rehearsals and like $24 an hour for appearances, but you had to be available for the entire run of the opera, and their op- operas run like three hours, and you have to be there before, and so it's like, it added up. Yeah. And they paid you in, cr- like if this is one of the weird things, is that because it was off book, they paid us in perfectly crisp, pristine $1 bills, <laughs> which as a kid was actually cooler than the actual money, you know, <laughs> and, uh-huh. and like sequential, and you could put a band around them, and that kind of thing, uh-huh. but also you got to run, you got, you got out of school sometimes for matinees, And you got to run around backstage at the Met where it is like a whole other city beneath the surface and full of like Viking uniform outfit costumes and spears and Roman centurion things and all that (laughs) kind of stuff. And so you, you know, you get away from your minders and you go have sword fights and that kind of stuff. It was, it was a great experience.
0: Uh, so, this is a great segue that I didn't plan, uh, but were you ever, the times that you were mugged, was that money that you made as a, as a, working at the opera, one of the things that was taken from you?
1: I'm sure it was, (laughs) uh, because, I mean, that was a big chunk of my disposable income back in those days, and, um, I was mugged, but it was, you know... It was a more wholesome kind of mugging. (laughs) Yeah, the way you
0: describe it, it's like it happened, it was like classmates of yours. No, 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 no classmates,
1: no classmates. Um, But people who were your age? Yeah, mostly my age. Basically, you know, growing up in New York City on the Upper West Side in the 1970s, um, there were two public schools, PS9, public school number nine. They never gave it a name when I
0: was... (laughs) How bureaucratic.
1: And, And Brandeis, which was a high school. And a lot of those kids came from rougher neighborhoods. Although the space between my day, my grade school, and my home was a pretty rough neighborhood. And those kids, you know, they took dead aim at the at the dorky little kids walking around. And you know, people would have their bikes stolen. They would have, I would have, you know, they'd say, "Hey, come here! I got to ask you a question." And they would say, "Okay, now empty out your pockets." That kind of thing, you know we weren't a lot of, like, knives and no guns or anything like that. Sometimes a some kid would show me a pocket knife or something like that. But they would throw you up against the wall and be three or four of them, and they'd take your money. And, you know, you could run away. You could try and push them back. But they were usually older and bigger. And um, it was just sort of – I mean, I don't think it was as bad as what my dad went through when he went to high school in the Bronx where it was just – a pastime of the Irish kids that beat up the Jewish kids. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it, I mean, 1970s New York, it's so hard to explain to people what it was like compared to, to today.
0: Well, a good example, this is not on my list of questions, but could you just r- refresh me on the time that you were almost abducted, right, in Times Square or something like that?
1: Uh, okay, well, there are two, two different stories. One was my brother and I were walking to my dad's office and... We were allowed at a pretty young age, if we were together, to go walking around by ourselves. And I was too young to understand what was going on, but some dude in Times Square, back when Times Square was super porny, um, and I'm not talking Bigfoot erotica, I'm talking porny, and um, <laughs> lots of hookers, lots of grifters, lots of, like, uh, midnight cowboy, hey, I'm walking here kind of stuff. Yeah. And some guy came up to me and my brother, and the guy said, started telling my brother that... Uh, we can, He could pay us a lot of money if we came with him, and he's just like I think he literally wanted us to get in his van. <laughs> and I was like, hey, a lot of money. That sounds cool, you know. But like, I was just like a little kid. I didn't know what he was talking about. And Josh was my brother. Josh was just like, uh, no, we're not going with you. Blah 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 blah. So that was that was one time where which could have ended very very badly. Uh huh. Um, the other time, which you may have been thinking, which I thought you were talking about, was uh, when we were really little. The parents who all lived on my side of Broadway would take turns, sort of like instead of carpool, walkpool, where one parent <laughs> would walk like the five kids to school. yeah, so you could t- you can go quicker through the bad blocks through the bad neighborhood. And same thing at picking up after school. And one day, my mom was had her was pushing her bike because she rode her bike to the school to pick us up. and on the way home, this back then we called them winos. Um, but a homeless guy, um, maybe had like eight teeth, black guy, older, saw me, and I was a cute little kindergartner, wearing my little terrycloth t-shirt and, you know, whatever, and he wanted to play with me. And so he charges up and picks me up and starts spinning me around. And oh,
0: gosh. I, you
1: know, I'm like, I'm, I'm f- completely freaked out. He's a scary looking guy, but it turned out he was a sweet guy, sweet old drunk, you know, uh, homeless guy. But all my mom sees, because she was walking ahead, she turns around and sees this guy picking me up, this sort of tattered demalion, you know, picking me up and spinning me around while I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And she beat the crap out of this poor guy. Oh, no. Before, just, just became a helicopter of fists and um, threw him up against the wall of the post office on 83rd between Amsterdam and Columbus. And kept punching him until the guy, very upset, I don't think less because he was being punched, but more because he scared me, explained that he just wanted to play with me. But, <laughs> oh, God. You know, you had to keep your head on a swivel <laughs> back in those days. But she felt terrible about it. I didn't feel terrible about it at the time because I was all shaken up. Uh-huh. But uh, it, the, the memory is very vivid for me.
0: Wow. No, see, I don't think you've ever – I don't think this has ever been on a podcast. I'm I, glad I got this. Yeah, this is gold. Uh, so <laughs> – this is something you have discussed on podcasts. Okay. I, I would understand if you don't want to talk about it more than you have. Uh-huh. Drugs. Drugs. You talked about this a little in the Nick Gillespie episode. You mentioned in the in the first Megan McCarl episode. Also the
1: Charlie Cook episode.
0: Yes. Do you want to say anything about drugs and you?
1: About what I've used or what yes, oh, Because of...
0: you, you've you've hinted at a at past use.
1: Yeah, I mean look, I mean um I always want to be a little careful about this but by the time my daughter hears this it'll be part of a conversation I can have with her and all that <laughs> stuff. Um she's not a regular listener I assume. No. Um uh I smoked pot a bit in college in high school. I did a couple other things in high school as purely as experimental things, tried them either liked them a lot and realized I should not do this anymore or <laughs> didn't like it and didn't see what the appeal was. I was never a very good uh I was uh, I never really liked the, you know, some people can be very social when they smoke pot, and I get that. And, like, if you're watching the right movie with the right friends, that kind of thing, you can laugh really, really hard.
0: Ah, uh, so you're about to explain why, you, that you think weed makes you more introspective. Which yes. Is, I was going to ask you why you think this is the case.
1: Well, I just know it's the case because I found that I actually liked smoking weed alone more than I liked smoking weed with other people. <laughs> and I liked... Back when I thought I was going to be writing fiction and all that kind of stuff, I would take notes about these amazing insights that I had, and then I would read them when I wasn't high, and I was like, this is not that amazing. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so part of it, I mean, just to sort of take the jokiness out of it, uh, my brother was always two years ahead of me in school. My brother had a real issue with drugs. He smoked a lot of pot. And I saw where his life was going, the sort of path it was taking. And my brother and I were so similar in so many ways. And... I decided to take the other, you know, the other fork in the road um, and go a different way. And I think I tried pot once in the last 15 years, something like that. And it's just not for me. Um, I'm also particularly terrified of it because these days, because it's so much more potent than it was 40 years ago. 30... This is why
0: this uh, this is one thing that you and Alex Jones agree on. Uh-huh. Uh, he he smokes he smokes pot once a year uh-huh. uh, to determine whether it actually is getting stronger. Oh really? Yes. Okay.
1: I suspect that once a year he does it for those purposes. <laughs> but Tough that, but fair. Yeah. So, um, and so I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. I have some. <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> did you do that on purpose? I did not. Uh, I, I, I have some stories I can tell you off air, but um, for the most part, I, I am perfectly willing to admit that I experimented. Uh, a goodly amount. I, I think one of the counterintuitive things, which I would never apply to my own parenting, is that I tried some of it early enough that later, when there was real peer pressure for it, I was a little more immune because um, I was like, "Yeah, I've tried that. It's not for me." And people couldn't say, "Oh, try it. You'll like it," and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff. Um, but I, you know, growing up in New York City, I knew lots of kids who had real drug problems, and uh, that was a real cautionary for me and I was never one of these you know, there's this great line which loses all context unless you see it you know the TV show the young ones the British show I don't, I don't you, think you so. might really like it um, it was really big when I was in high school it was um, there's this one scene where this nerdy guy says I don't think it's particularly cool to use drugs and uh, we used to say that all the time as a, a very ironic thing and I was never one of these guys who like was uh, to be blunt about narcish about it you know Uh but um it was never it was just never a huge part of my life and and the as i got older and as my brother became more and more sort of a cautionary tale for me and about the troubles that it visited upon my family it was more and more something that i just it was a path i didn't want to go and by college i was mostly done with all of it except maybe in some rare social occasions. Um, And
0: you're hanging out with the libertarians. Pretty much, and then (laughs)
1: uh, by after college, I was was really largely done with it all.
0: And what about, so same question, but about uh, excessive alcohol. You've mentioned being blackout drunk a few times. On the this podcast. Week. <laughs> no, 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 Never, I mean... Yeah, look, you've I... You've mentioned it on the podcast, and you've never been on the podcast well. Yeah. Although, what an episode that would be. Uh, we never did do The Drunk Remnant. No, we didn't. Well, there's still time. Um, You'll feel better about doing that somewhere else. Um,
1: I'm, um... You know, I drink too much. I think that's right. But I'm, you know, I... I bet maybe once a year, if I'm not in Europe, do I drink before 6 o'clock at night? And, um... Drank a lot of beer in high school and college. I'm not going to dispute that. I used to go to. I started going to bars, uh, particularly this place called Cannons up by Columbia University um, in ninth grade. And um,
0: is it still around? I think it
1: recently departed. The, the The physical bar is kind of there, but I think it's called something else now. Um, there were mistakes made, um,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, but there's cautionary tales. Uh, you know, in in high school, it was there was a lot of you know, beer drinking and sitting on stoops and nursing a a beer and all that kind of stuff or beers, and I'm kind of shocked at how much the culture has changed on all of that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it it sounds like I'm crying for help here, and I'm I, <laughs> I just you know it. it but I'm not going to lie. Well, why
0: don't you open another?
1: <laughs> That's a good point.
0: There you go. There you go. That'll, that'll, you'll feel better. It'll now. loosen me up. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Um, so, so this is, I mean, earnest kudos to you for actually being willing to talk about these things. Uh-huh. As you know, I'm f- famously coy about my own, my personal life.
1: I, I know. For all I know, you live in a refrigerator box somewhere. But anyway, go on.
0: Uh, yeah, it'll, be, it'll make the move very easy. Um, but these are potentially embarrassing things. So what is the... Since you're already on the subject, what's the most embarrassing interaction you've had with someone famous or someone you respected? Oof. So I assume the George Will origin story, we're going to just discard that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I, I still kind of think I was better I, I, I'm I not sure that I lose that hands down anyway, um,
0: but... Uh, it's 25 years later, still. Still
1: bitter. I, you know, I, I saw him in Seville, in Spain on this trip. Really? Yeah. You ran into
0: George Will yeah. in Spain? <laughs> it's, it was bizarre. Um, is everyone, is, is Spain the new, is this like 50, uh, however many years after Franco died, Spain is now like where all conservatives are going?
1: Um, there right, used, like there, an exile. You know? There
0: was like that brief period where like Brent Bozell went to Sp- the, 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 the elder Brent Bozell yeah. went to Spain because he was like, Franco is my ideal polity.
1: Yeah. Um, hey, yeah. that, that idea is making a comeback these days too. I <laughs> So I hear. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I can, I'm sure this is one of these things I'll have Esprit de about for a while about all the other embarrassing times, but, um, one time what's his name, Harry Shear, right? The Simpsons guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, also from... Oh, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap yeah. and, and all those Christopher Guest movies. I was at a party at Rob Long's house in California, in Venice, and I saw him. He came up to talk to me and somebody else, whatever, and I had just seen A Mighty Wind, the movie. Yeah. And there's at the end of that movie, there's a scene where... uh. Shear talks about how committed he is to his moisturizing discipline where he <laughs> like puts uh, lotion on his face and all this kind of, it's this, this long, very weird little thing. And I, I've done this kind of thing a few times. I just assumed that he knew the reference because he's in the movie. And I, the <laughs> first thing I said out of my mouth was something along the lines of almost quoting him directly. Um, I'm really impressed by your, you know, by the quality of your, your, of, of, of your skin. It's It really <laughs> shines. And, and did this whole, like, little riff. And he was looking at me like he had no idea what I was talking about. He was like, I, for, I have no idea what was going through his head. But, like, in retrospect, I thought maybe he thought I was hitting on
0: him. <laughs> um,
1: it was a very, very bad, blushy moment. I'll see if I can think of some others.
0: Okay. Uh, in the meantime, so the, the, this story you've told about Irving Kristol and Robert Bork, uh-huh. discussing uh, the decadence of society yeah. at, at AI at some point. Is uh-huh. there anything more to that? Was just the, is that just a conversation you happened to overhear?
1: Oh, I didn't overhear it. Because uh, um, th- the Ter- Clarence Thomas hearings happened. So the story, for listeners that don't know, is that uh, according to lore, Irving Crystal and Robert Bork were watching the hearings in Bork's
0: office. The the, the Clarence Thomas hearings. The Clarence
1: Thomas hearings. Bork's
0: AEI office? Yeah. Okay.
1: And at some point, Bork turns off the TV in disgust and says, it's the end of Western civilization. And Irving takes a long drag of his cigarette, blows the smoke out and says, of course it's the end of Western civilization. That doesn't mean one can't live well. And uh, that, I believe, was told to me... By his f- former research assistant at the time, and it was like one of these stories that I picked up when I first came to AI in 1992 or whatever yeah. it was. Um, but I did not hear it myself. And, oh. Um, but Bork and Irving, but but Bork and Crystal and those guys mm-hmm. they loomed very large. And you know, when I got out of co- college, I had you asked me about intellectual lacunae before, the plural of lacuna. Um, Correct. I. Uh, I, you know, I screwed around so much in high school and um and in college, I got a lot out of college, but there were, you know, there were a lot of blank spots because I they taught more about Foucault than the Federalist Papers. And um when I landed at AEI, I stumbled into all this stuff about political philosophy, about Straussianism and all that, and I really threw myself into it headlong and filled in a lot of the gaps in my education. So Bork and Irving and Walter Burns those guys were it was a really kind of wild intellectual time for me because not only was I getting up to speed reading about all of them but I was actually in the building with them you know <laughs> or in the office with them
0: yeah they were hanging out you could have uh, awkward interactions with them like leaving the bathroom and stuff often yeah yeah um, that must have been kind of intimidating i mean they the i think Charles Murray has told this story publicly that that Irving Kristol chewed him out for his his casual attire once
1: yeah that's in his curmudgeons guide yeah where he like his first day at the office er, Charles shows up and Irving comes out of the elevator or vice versa and Irving basically just says well what do we have here because Charles was all in jeans and a flannel shirt or something like that um yeah no it it was a it was I mean I still think AI is a great place now and it's getting better um but it was a really heady time for me back then
0: uh, okay, uh, so if, if I really had wanted to, I could have stitched all these questions together a bit more cohesively, but I'm not going to do that, because I see that they're now, I could have forced connections between the two of them. But I want to go back to your mom. Uh-huh. Uh, so... The, when she was beating up that homeless man, uh-huh. <laughs> such a such a great clause to <laughs> be able to say. Uh, was this before or after or during the time that she was a mounted policewoman in Central Park?
1: You know, I'm not sure. It's probably around that time because I was little when she was a mounted policewoman. and um, how,
0: how okay, good, keep going.
1: Okay, so New York City, I don't know if it still does, but it used to have a auxiliary police force thing where particularly for mounted police. And my mom was a she grew up riding horses. So she knew oh, how to ride okay.
0: horses! So that's the that's is that how she like she, since she had that skill? Like, yeah, she,
1: some friend of hers found out about it and said, "Oh, we should go do this." And so she did parade duty. Um, uh, I think she made one arrests. So, you know, so in Central Park, uh, there's a statue of Balto, uh-huh. the dog that brought the typhoid serum to in, Al, in Alaska.
0: Typhoid uh, antidote. Antidote. Right. Yeah, or
1: penicillin, whatever it is. Some yeah, feeding. yeah.
0: Not the not the like strand of typhoid
1: um, to infect everyone. Right, that's that's an older story. And um uh and some kids were graffitiing it.
0: And she, oh. she,
1: that was her one I think her one arrest. And again, to give you a pastiche of New York City in the nineteen seventies, I mean so she it was great. You know, my dad would take my brother and I to the zoo and my mom would come riding up on her horse and give us a little rides around it. It was really cool. Wow. And um and she thought it was a lot of fun. And then her sergeant, who was a real cop, the guy who was like in charge of the thing, he was parked in his car. This is the way I remember the story. So, I mean, fact checkers might have time with it, but this is the way I remember it.
0: Who else is going to fact check this?
1: No, I know, but this this could be fact checked. So he, the way I heard it, when I asked my mom about this 25 years ago, she stopped doing it because her sergeant was with his girlfriend parked somewhere, I don't know if it was in the squad car or not, but that's my memory of it, and a crazy guy, completely naked, jumped in the car and killed them both. And she was like, all right, I got little kids, I'm done, <laughs> and stopped doing it. And uh, Wow. Um, but, and, those are tales of the city.
0: <laughs> um. So, I'll, I'll just round out the things from your personal life before I go into these, a few truly... Uh, contested questions between us. Uh Uh-oh. Is there anything more to that meeting with Andre the Giant that you'd like to say? I think you referenced this in a very recent podcast. Uh, With Jake Tapper, yeah. Because,
1: again, it all comes back to Bigfoot erotica. Andre the Giant played Bigfoot in The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh-huh. Although, I believe they just called him Sasquatch in The Six Million Dollar Man, but I could be wrong about that. Um,
0: They called Andre the Giant Sasquatch or they called Bigfoot Sasquatch?
1: They called Bigfoot Sasquatch. Okay. Um... Um, why I don't I could be wrong about that, but it's
0: an it, acceptable synonym, yeah
1: um uh, not really. I mean, it was in sixth grade we were on a class trip to Boston. We were at a hotel that he was staying at and all I wasn't that big into wrestling, but all the kids were like, oh my God, Andre the Giants here Andre the Giants here. So we went and we shook hands with him and his like I it was like I was a, a GI Joe doll shaking hands with a normal human being. And he was just, (laughs) my hand just disappeared in his palm. And in sixth grade, I was a pretty big kid, but Uh he was just a large person.
0: Uh, So I promised that we'd come back to this uh, earlier. Why did an Irish twin punch you in the face?
1: Ah. um, I wasn't sure which punch in the face story you were (laughs) going to ask me (laughs) about. There are are multiple. Since that's the only one you know about, we'll leave it there. Uh, Okay. Fair um, enough uh on the east side um on york avenue on 83rd or 84th street there was a the remnants of what they called themselves a gang it was the 84th street gang or the 83rd i think it's the 84th street gang someone will correct me on this and basically it was just a bunch of hooligans and uh teenage hooligans and one of them and two of them <laughs> were these irish twins. I mean, I I don't, I bring it up only because they had shocking red hair and their name was like O'Malley, whatever. And they kind of wore it on their face. They were kind of like caricatures in a lot of ways. And uh, they showed up at some party I was at and they were just hooligans. And I said something to someone or I made a joke or I looked at them the wrong way and I turn around and he's just hauling off and decking me in the face. And I go down and the girl I was flirting with was like, oh, my God, why did you do that? And she stuck with me. So I was like, all right, I'll stay here. <laughs> and, um, uh, but that's sort of the, uh, the, the end of that story.
0: Okay. Um, why do you hate bottled water? I hate bottled water? Here is something you've said, you said once in a speech we are becoming much more of an earbuds on the treadmill drinking water nation than a bunch of people hanging out at a bar having conversations nation okay. and and you remember in, in suicide of the west there's the you cite the statistic about yeah. bottled water b- bottled water sales exceeding sales of beer yeah
1: so I, I drink a lot of bottled water and one of my laments about ai is we stock a thousand different beverages but not bottled water although i do worry more about plastic pollution so i'm i'm more open to that that said it's a point that was first, I believe, made by Susan McWilliams, um, maybe in the CRB or something, where it's, um, it's it's to me, it's just one of these small indicators for sort of like the Yuval Levin thesis about, um, or the bowling alone thesis, that um, we are socializing in little platoons left and we are retreating into a cult of individuality and um, and personal health to an extent that I think is kind of sad. I mean, they're, you know, it, particularly when you go to, like, London or, or England and you stop in a pub, it's, it's, it's not the drinking. They're not, like, drinking to get soused, although obviously some people are. They're drinking to have conversations. They're drinking to watch the game. They're drinking to talk. And I thought her point, which was that the sales of... Of beer going down, and the sales of bottled water going up were a part and parcel of this sort of uh, atomization of civil society. That's all. It's mm. not. A, a
0: I mean, take I, it or leave it. I I have obvious objections to this as a as a as a healthy individual. Um, I mean, people people could be drinking alone. Sure. No, that's true. Uh, and. People could be drinking bottled water at parties, uh, and people can exercise together.
1: Yes, all of those things are true. We're talking about grand, sweeping trends. People can also go to dog parks without a dog. Um, <laughs> I, but as as Yuval would point out, borrowing from uh, Robert Nisbet, people form institutions to do certain things. Pubs exist to serve beer, and a byproduct of that is that people like to, to drink beer with other people. And... Um, people don't go to football games ostensibly to tailgate, but tailgating is a great example of sort of the spontaneous order of civil society where people socialize and have a good time. And if we got into such a health kick that instead of tailgating and eating, you know, brats and nachos and wings, we were on such a health kick that everyone just brought their, you know, Jetsons space age, Protein pill, and then went to their seat. I think that would be kind of sad. We'd be losing some of the sort of frothiness of of social life.
0: But we're not healthy. America's not a healthy nation.
1: Okay, (laughs) I mean you're not gonna. I'm just not. I'm not taking the bait on this.
0: All right, fine. Uh, I will. You. I know something. You'll take the bait on. Uh Uh, Why do you refuse to understand Lost? Why? It'd be one thing if you you criticized it there are plenty of criticisms to make but i whenever we discuss this the the just the facts just the straight facts about the show that you give to me are an error and that i i want you to be certain of your facts before you go about making the familiar criticisms of the show
1: oh uh, look jack i understand this is a passion of yours and <laughs> um i watched that show through to the end and i cannot Cite chapter and verse about it. I apologize for that. Um, if I thought it was possible to uh, correct your errors about it, um, I would, and, and that it was not only possible, but that it was worth trying. <laughs> <laughs> if there was some grand payoff. I might revisit all what five seasons, seven seasons,
0: six. Yeah, hundred and oh, did it really have a hundred and eight episodes? It may have. That would be. And eerily fitting, it
1: felt to me like a grand bait and switch that they didn't know really how to end it, and that the cliffhanger stuff was stretched out for ad dollars and 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 all the rest. And
0: that's that's a separate criticism f- from the show. Uh huh. That's the that's network imposition, I think. Okay,
1: um, but uh, I mean, I, I feel a little bit like Jim Gosowski on taxi talking about by the third season of star trek they were having romulans do things that romulans would never do <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh well, we're just are, we're gonna the... have to disagree to disagree i mean agree to disagree <laughs> <of a sudden. laughs> no we can't disagree
0: um uh okay fine um i think this is this this approach is more more fruitful when i ask you things that i can't argue ab- about with you uh and that's it that's uh, those are all the real questions i have unless okay. there's a anything uh, is there anything that you wanted to say want to oh wait uh-huh. there is one more thing okay. not a question to ask you but episode 11 yeah what should we do cuz i i put a i i had a poll uh-huh. i discovered a an excerpt of episode 11 in our archive uh-huh and uh, listeners want to hear it uh-huh what do you think about that i i am i'm kind of opposed cuz i think I re-listened to it, and I I had to um, look at a picture of my family afterward just yeah. to remind myself which uh, which plane of reality I was in.
1: I mean, I've only stopped cutting myself in the last, like, six months because of episode 11. So. Yeah,
0: I, I'm very worried. I mean, I frankly, I don't think we should release it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. And part of my problem is I don't know what excerpt you found. Yeah. And so, but listening to it could just, bring back all the PTSD uh-huh. and so I, I don't know we'll, we'll probably just have to talk about this off air for listeners who don't know what we're talking about we had episode 11 things went awry and we never aired it there's one USB drive I understand that is buried deep under no no it's,
0: well it's 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 buried with Jimmy Hoffa okay so, so I know where Jimmy Hoffa is buried I put the USB there I won't tell any of you where it is
1: that's sort of like the old joke it was running joke on on Get Smart where the only way to find a lost cufflink is to drop your other cufflink because they'll roll together. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can find episode 11, you can find Jimmy Hoffa.
0: Okay. Um, oh, and something I forgot to mention when you were talking about Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but when we first met in person, mm-hmm. uh, when you taught that class at Hillsdale, mm-hmm. and you had us all write op-eds, my op-ed was about Bigfoot. That's right. Uh, I have a... It was about... Uh, a guy who was trying to kill or capture and then kill Bigfoot to prove that Bigfoot is real. Uh-huh. And I was opposed to this. Yeah. Uh, isn't that that's sort of weird symmetry? It all, I, again, it all comes back to Bigfoot.
1: Uh, um, so, uh, some questions for you. Oh, no. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, oh,
0: you've been writing things down. No. <laughs> oh, right. I, I, okay.
1: Um, let's see. So... Uh, what did you expect working for me slash AEI at the beginning, um, and how did the actual experience differ?
0: Uh, hmm. Well, I didn't actually know what – here's – no, I, I knew. So I was – the biggest question for me was whether the sense that I got from you from your writings and your TV appearances would be –
1: would match uh, up, yes, uh-huh.
0: and because I know there, are, as I've learned, there are many people in Washington, for uh, in for whom those two things are completely different. Uh-huh. Uh huh. For you, they are th- pretty much the same. <laughs> uh, Yay! <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a compliment. You don't. You. You're pretty. Much, I mean, you. You said something about Mitch McConnell speedballing bl- uh, black tar heroin on Fox News. Uh, Rings a bell. Yeah, I mean, it's just like <laughs> y- there's not really. I mean, you'd probably use less profanity on Fox than you would in in real life. Yes, uh, I think that's, that's right. Uh, FCC and all that. Yeah, yeah but no, I, I. That's the so learning that you are actually uh, consistent in your ethos across whether you're on TV on in the on the radio, uh, or just uh, throwing pennies at me. <laughs> no, that's something only my high school high school classmates did. That was something I found out. Uh, I, d- I had no idea what think tanks were going to be like. But yeah. I, and I, well, so actually, my sense of a think tank was I thought they were going to, like, when I walked in, they're going to uh, remove my brain from my body and just deposit it in, like, a sort of aquarium. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because, like, why, why do you need your physical body if all you're doing is thinking? Right. It's just like a waste of, of energy.
1: And you can just wager quatlose that way. Yeah. Um, but
0: no, it was AI turned out not to be like that. Maybe sometime in the future it will be. I don't know.
1: One can only hope.
0: Uh, but no, I, I had no idea what think tank life was going to be like. I I knew from past experience that AI had food because I, as an intern before I worked here at other places in DC, I went out of my way to make sure that I ate here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because I was do I was on this sort of starving intern model mm-hmm. of making of just like hopping from free from event to event and just feasting on hors d'oeuvres or but in AI's case it was meals. Yeah. But yeah.
1: And um, are you we don't know if you're going to keep the young Americans?
0: I would like to- uh-huh. uh I hope to
1: um there are literally dozens of people who are just fingers crossed
0: waiting to find out. yes, I know um, and, and only and only half of them are in my family <laughs> uh, does your
1: whole family actually listen regularly to your podcast
0: they're I think they they're kind of erratic about it uh-huh. um I mean i don't i they're I think people vary in the way they consume podcasts. Sometimes you're in a position in life where you're just more able to listen to them than otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think that they are that way as well.
1: I think we can reveal now, and and if we can't, you'll just cut it out so no one will ever know.
0: Yeah, I like the way that we act like we're live, even though we're not. Yeah. This is really just a conversation between the two of us right now.
1: Um, uh, early on in the run of The Remnant, I would make all sorts of inappropriate... Uh, s and type jokes about Jack, and and um, I remember getting an email from Jack where he was very polite, and he laid out his case very delicately, very diplomatically about how it's not his place to dictate content of the podcast. Or, or it any, wasn't then. <laughs> or, or anything <laughs> like that. But my family has been listening to the podcast, and some of the release the gimp jokes are deeply, are, are, are offensive to them, and so if we could cut that stuff out, um, I'd appreciate it. I thought it was a perfectly legitimate thing to ask, and we really haven't done any of that since. But I didn't stop in time um, to prevent some strange interactions, including, I think it was at University of Santa California, Santa Barbara. Um, you know how I encourage people to bring me brown liquor and whatnot and stuff uh-huh. I actually do. One guy brought a really fearsome choke chain for dogs to the event and he said I brought this for you for Jack.
0: <laughs> I was like this is Ugh. really
1: creepy and uh yeah um it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, so there's that and like I'm ag- I'm I'm against choke chains for dogs. You know, <laughs> so um
0: well, thanks for extending your ethic to me then.
1: And so uh, uh going bigger picture, what you know, regardless of what it has to do with me, you're your own person now. You're going to go off to a fantastic career at, at National Review. Uh, the state of sort of intellectual life and conservative life was considerably different, uh, certainly when I was teaching at Hillsdale. You might say that. Yeah. And <laughs> um, and even when you started here, right? You might say that as well. So uh, what are what thoughts do you have about how you fit into this grand schema of things and uh, and Um, you've watched the sausage get made, you know, I've brought you to Fox a few times. You've seen how people here at AEI do it. You've got all sorts of friends at other conservative media outlets and whatnot. Um, what, 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 what is your assessment of the patient right now?
0: Uh, so I would say that probably the biggest difference on this front between you and me is that just as a product of my upbringing, I think I have a bit more, I'm not saying that you hate, like the non-coastal United States. Uh, I don't believe that. Uh, Spend enough time uh, outside of New York and D.C. that I just know that that's factually untrue. Mm-hmm. But I think I just have a, a bit more heartland sympathy and like a more a bit more uh, of a willingness to like forgive its faults uh-huh. and just like to let my my. Uh, uh, Irrationality take over where reason should actually prevail. Sure, fair. Uh, but so I think that's why one of the best arguments, one of the arguments against Trump that appeals to me the most, is that he has kind of, in certain respects, like when you measure him by that metric, he's actually there are certain ways in which he's actually failing those people specifically. Yeah. Uh, the people he he who basically elected him. But so where do I see myself? I don't know. I I mean I I guess you've given me this platform that makes people care about. My opinion I there are still a lot of things I I am uncertain about I have no idea what the future of conservatism or the Republican Party will look like um, I used to consider myself kind of a reformicon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Reformacons consider themselves Reformacons anymore. That's a good question. Uh, now, now I just decide whatever of Levin happens to write is just my opinion. Yeah, I,
1: I fall into that quite a bit these days, too.
0: Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of things I have to make up my mind about a lot of things. One thing I don't have to make up my mind about is the the um, the grandeur of the Dune, uh, <laughs> the Dune <laughs> novels. Which I had to, I had to plug here.
1: Do I get any credit for turning you on to Dune? I can't remember. I, I'll
0: give you credit because okay. I. So I bought the first book year, like more than a decade ago at uh-huh. a half price books, along with Neuromancer by William Gibson. And great book. I can't get through it. Really? I, I, just, I've gotten, I've tried reading it two or three times, and I'm just like, huh? What? This is. I don't, I don't get this. I don't, I, just, I don't think I really like William Gibson's writing style. Um, I'll, I'll give it another go. I'm sure this is going to give me a lot of heretic points. Uh, but yeah, I bought it at half price books when I was like 16, didn't touch it, and then I can't remember exactly why, I don't remember when you started talking about it, uh, but I, I read it uh, during the RNC, the uh-huh. 2016 RNC, well, I, Like when there was nothing going on, I would just sit down and read Dune, uh-huh. uh, which got a, lot, a surprising amount of uh, compliments for when I was just sitting in the arena, uh, and people would walk by and be like, it's a good book. <laughs> so it's it's within its conservatism sci- science fiction book. Well, no, that's probably uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, yeah, actually. Yeah. The one where the, the moon colonists rebel against Earth taxes on the 4th of July in 2076 or whatever it is. But anyway, I don't know why. I se- well, I do know why I segued to Dune, but I don't know if I fully answered your question. No, that's fine.
1: Um, so in the time we have left... Uh... Which
0: is... Which is Precious, precious, little, Scar- and scarce, and
1: scarce, both in the cosmic sense, in terms of our fleeting time on this mortal coil, and uh-huh. also that we have to get out of the studio in seven minutes. Um, I just wanted to say to the listeners and to Jack, you know, uh, um, did not quite know what to make of Jack when I uh, first hired him. He's a idiosyncratic guy, uh, but he did incredibly valiant yeoman, intellectually taxing. And valuable work for me, particularly on Suicide of the West, now out in paperback. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, I
0: have to learn to th- th- that shame that shameless plugging muscle.
1: I do it so much less than I could, I have to be honest. Um, which I'm not sure is exonerating in any way, but, um, you
0: should. I mean, it's your stuff, gotta yeah. it.
1: Um, but, um, And uh, with a new preface, by the way. Did I tell you that? Anyway, so- (laughs) You um, told me that a long um, time ago. So, uh, and I think I'm going to Italy in the spring for the Italian, a release of the Italian edition, which should be exciting.
0: Oh, Um, I have a funny story along those lines to tell you after this this airs.
1: um, But uh, I'm deeply grateful to Jack. I know a lot of listeners are big Jack fans. Despite the fact that many people just sort of assume Jack was a serial killer when they first met him, he's become sort of an institution here at AI, and he's going to be sorely missed. And I'm grateful to everything um, that you've done for me and with me, and, um, and not necessarily to me. Um, and uh, um, uh, I'm glad that we're going to stay friends, and I know you're going to uh, go on to great things at National Review, which is still sort of my home away from home.
0: Yes, the feeling is mutual. I I owe you a great deal. It'll be I probably will never be able to truly repay what you've given me. We'll put you on a plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that's good. I, I'm glad you undercut my sincerity. Too much sincerity is bad for this podcast. Yeah, I know sincerity. But any, yeah, is but anyway. Um,
1: all right, uh, we're not going to hug. So uh, with all of that, uh, thank you to the iHeart listeners who are actually interested in all of this um, and. Um, we will have Jack back on as a as a for for special cameos and guest appearances in the future. Um, I don't know when, I don't know how, but we will make it happen. Yeah. And um, so, thanks to everybody for the support for this podcast and for everything else. And I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Congratulations! If you made it this far, you actually get to hear episode eleven. We've decided we're going to air it. How do you feel about that, Jonah?
1: I'm, 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 I'm a little nervous, but. Um...
0: So here it goes. I hope that you're, that you're ready for this. Oh, oh, wait! Not that part. Ah!
1: that wasn't actually the real episode 11.